Open your Bibles to Acts 18. Acts 18 will be beginning in a moment at verse 24. Acts 18, 24. As you turn there, let me ask you this question. What should you do with a heretical teacher in the church? What should you do with a teacher who is teaching something that is just wrong? had an interesting uh, experience when I was the headmaster of the Christian school. We had chapel twice a week, and it was my job to schedule the chapel speakers. And my first year there, I didn't know a lot of the the local pastors. I didn't know any of the local pastors really yet. And uh, so I would call up some of the guys that had been on the list before, and I would invite them to come speak at chapel. And and I, uh, I would... We would work through a particular portion of the scriptures, each taking a different section in subsequent chapels. We had an interesting occurrence. On Tuesday and Thursday of the same week, uh, using the same book of the Bible, just a few verses apart, two pastors, two men, stood up in chapel and said exactly the opposite things about the passage. They flat out contradicted each other. It's not that one said one interpretation and one offered something else that could be drawn out of that passage. It's that the two of them said that the other, not knowing it, they didn't purposely do this, they didn't know each other, they didn't know they were speaking, but their conclusions from the text were exactly the opposite. They could not possibly both be right. It was hypothetically possible that both were wrong, But there was no way for both to be right. For one was saying the text says A, and the other said we know for sure the text does not say A. What was I to do as the headmaster of the school? How was I to handle that? We had wrong teaching in our school. Some years ago, I was teaching a Sunday school class at another church and was going through a kind of a survey of systematic theology And I was reading, in preparation for class, I was reading on the doctrines of pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit. And I was reading along about this doctrine called modalism, and I was reading and I was going, oh yeah, that's how I think about the Trinity, and oh yeah, I see that, and oh, I get it. And as I read along, I get to the last page of the book I'm reading, and I turn over, and the sentence at the top of the last page, I can't quote it exactly, but it started something like this. The reason modalism is heresy... And I went, what? Wait a second, what? Heresy? This is how I think about the Trinity. And they laid out what was heretical about the modalistic view of the Trinity. What should my church have done with me? Drawn and quartered me? I don't know. What we see this morning in this text is a pastor, a gifted, faithful, able pastor who gets it wrong who is teaching something at least incomplete, if not contradictory. We're going to take a look at how that is handled in the church and how that is handled in him personally. I've called this sermon the portrait of a pastor, Apollos, portrait of a pastor. With that kind of title, it might be tempting to say to yourself, well, this doesn't apply to me because I'm not a pastor. But I would like to remind all of us that a pastor is just a word for shepherd. And each of us shepherd someone at some level. Oh, we don't warrant the technical title of pastor, each of us. But in some level, we shepherd 
someone. Perhaps you are, like me, a pastor of a church. Perhaps you teach a Sunday school class, lead a Bible study. Perhaps you speak up in Sunday school or at a Bible study. Perhaps you have children in your home. Perhaps you interact regularly with your grandchildren. At a minimum, you are guiding your own heart, shepherding it, pastoring it. Each of us needs to consider what is involved in being a pastor. And more than that, each of us is part of a church that will sooner or later have to call a pastor. Or we will be called away from this church because of life circumstances, and we will have to find a church and consider its pastor. And so there is wisdom and value in each of us knowing what is involved in being a pastor. And the text we have before us, though not an absolutely complete text, nevertheless, does give us some insight into who and what a pastor is and how to handle it when that pastor goes wrong and how we should handle it when we are wrong. And yet, and we will consider, be reminded of the one who is never wrong. As we look at the text, we are going to consider a a pastor's preparation. We're going to consider a pastor's present. And we are finally going to look at a pastor's future. A pastor's preparation, a pastor's present, and a pastor's future. And you might be asking yourself, wait a second, pastor, you had a chance to have such parallel structure in your outline. You have the pastor's present, the pastor's future. Why didn't you talk about the pastor's past? Because as you'll see in a moment, There is far more going on here than merely his own past. But I'm glad you asked the question. Let's consider now Acts 18, 24 through 28. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, reveal to us your message this morning from this, your word. Help us to see what it is involved in those you call to be pastors, those who are who stand before the church and say, thus saith the Lord. But all of us who shepherd little ones, who shepherd each other, who who shepherd our own hearts, let us see what is involved and what is uh, important in the life and ministry of a pastor. Finally, Lord, let us look from this page, from the fallen pastors of this world, to the one who is the good shepherd, the good pastor, who leads us without error. We pray this in his name. Amen. A pastor's preparation, a pastor's present, and a pastor's future. We're going to look at all of them in this text and consider uh, how they challenge and encourage us and how they, they guide us as a church and how we understand things. I want to look first at this question of a pastor's preparation And the reason I didn't talk about a pastor's past is that you'll see there that some of this stuff really has nothing to do with his experiences. 
his historical past, but rather it is a part of the way he was prepared by God to be the pastor he was. The first thing we see right out of the gate is that he is a Jew. Apollos is a Jew. Why is this important? Well, we've seen repeatedly the the ministry of the Apostle Paul in the synagogues, his ability to have admission there because he was a Jew. We see now that Apollos is equipped by virtue of his uh, ethnic background. He is equipped to enter these synagogues. Now, don't see this as Luke saying that he was a Jew in the sense that he followed Judaism. No, he is a Christian but ethnically he is a Jew. We must never lose sight of the fact that God chooses our ethnicity. God chooses the color of our skin, our gender, our our socioeconomic status at birth. He puts us in the places that he puts us. And these things have value. It is amazing to me how often we bemoan the fact that we are not more this way or more that way. If only I was, instead of stopping to consider, who am I? Who has God made me? And where does this equip me to minister? I can, as a woman, perhaps be frustrated that I don't have some of the, the uh, opportunities that men have in the church. But it would be better to ask, God, you've made me a woman. What do you want me to do with that? How do I minister in light of that? I might not have certain gift sets. I might not be musical, and I might long to be a part of the praise team, the praise ministry. Rather than saying, Lord, what gifts have you given me? Apollos is a Jew. He is equipped to minister in a particular way. We next see there in verse 24, he was an eloquent man. The the Greek there is uh, aner logias. Aner meaning man, male. Logias, logos. If you've been around the church, you might know that the logo means word. Literally, he's a man of words. He's a man who has been, uh, much like we would use that today, a man of letters, a trained man, an educated man, a man trained probably in rhetoric. Uh, probably, you know, this doesn't say it with certainty, but usually this phrase is used in, in, in Greek of that time to refer to someone who's received some professional training and preparation for service in the law. He was pre- prepared as a lawyer. It is interesting to me how often that is the case in church history. You ever stop and think about how many key players in church history were initially set out to be lawyers? Guys like Jerome, Augustine, Luther, Kelvin, all of these men initially were trained as lawyers. Men of of letters, men of words, men who could think about things, who could think critically. We sometimes scoff at the idea of education, and yet we see that the Lord routinely uses education. We see that, uh, uh, more on that in a moment here. Uh, we, we see in verse 25, he was, it says in my translation, he was fervent in spirit. It's a little interesting to me, that translation, because in the Greek, the word the is there. 
He is fervent in the Spirit. And the moment we add that, it kind of changes how we read it, doesn't it? For typically in the book of Acts, where we have seen that reference to the Spirit, it has been the Holy Spirit. And I think that's probably, the commentaries I use all said, all agree that it's really what Luke's pointing us to here is not merely that he is an energetic, enthusiastic man, but that he is fervent in the Spirit. He is energetic and enthusiastic about the Spirit of God and the work of the Spirit of God. He was able to speak and teach accurately the things concerning Jesus. In verse 25, we see that. He had an ability to articulate with precision and care the truth of Jesus Christ. I know wonderful men and women who are incredibly godly, who know the scriptures far better than most pastors know them. Who, who live out the love of God with more compassion and grace than most pastors ever will. Who, who have in them a, a purity of spirit that far too many pastors lack. But they cannot articulate it. They struggle to make it clear to others. And one of the things we see routinely in the scriptures is the ability of those whom God calls, according to Ephesians, those whom he calls to be preachers and teachers, pastors and teachers, involves an equipping. They can speak articulately. They can declare with care and precision the things of God. It's not to say they never make a mistake. We had a pastor once upon a time who would frequently leave out little things like the word not, which can, you know, be kind of important. You know, uh, uh, he would forget the negative. So he would inadvertently say things like, there is evil in God. And I would have to elbow Becky and go, I think he forgot a word there. And he did. I knew the guy. He, he just, he just, that's, I'm not saying that pastors never make mistakes. They never say anything carelessly. But, more, but they are marked by the ability to, to speak with precision and care. It's not wrong to pursue a pastor, whether you are changing churches or the day comes that you have to call a new pastor here. It is not wrong to, to pursue a pastor that's easy to listen to because of how he speaks. If he's easy to listen to because he never challenges you, if he's easy to listen to because he never convicts you of sin, if he's easy to listen to because he's entertaining, well, that's something altogether different. But we see here that God, God uses people who are articulate, who can explain things. Isn't it interesting? This is being written by a doctor, a trained, educated man. We go on there, we see that he spoke boldly down in verse 26, and then in verse uh, 28, uh, he powerfully refuted the Jews. We see giftedness in this man, Apollos, that God prepared him. Some of it was things completely predating his own existence, but some of it was through the experiences his own past. God prepared him. We then can see um, in his edu- the giftedness, and we see his education. 
the line in verse 24, a native of Alexandria. If you've been with us for any length of time, you know that Luke likes to tell you where people are from. He will frequently point to their background. And as a general rule, Luke does that with, with uh, 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 trying to make a point. In Luke's mind, it was, was common in the world back then, you are, a, 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 and, and I think it's true even today, you are a product of your geography, of where you live and grow up and what you learn. And Alexandria was renowned for its uh, academics, a center of learning, a place of great education, and in particular, the Jews in Alexandria were known for being extremely well-educated and trained. This idea that he is a native of Alexandria, we are to see this as a clue to his preparation. Interestingly, a little piece of interest from uh, archaeology, Apollos is a common name in the archaeology of Egypt in the first century, and it is unknown outside of Egypt. It doesn't appear in any other places in the archaeology from that time period. Archaeological, you know, it ties in nicely to what we see here, that he is this man from Egypt. You know, we, uh, we, we see also here that he was competent in the scriptures, verse 24. Um, this word competent in English can have a little bit of a, 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 a negative overtone. It, it implies kind of a bare minimum. You got the C minus you needed to get by. That's really not the, the idea in, in the context here. And in fact, uh, uh, the, the word behind it is this word dunamis, this idea of power and, and, and ability. He has a power in the scriptures, an ability in the scriptures. And it can mean this. It's, the word competent is not a bad translation, but it can apply some things in English that we shouldn't read into the text. Don't let it uh, cast us in a negative light. Rather, he is a capable man. He was proven is kind of the idea. Judged by others evaluated by others. This is not his own assessment. This is one of the reasons that in our denomination, we don't merely allow someone to say, well, I feel called to the ministry and therefore I should be a pastor. We say, okay, you, you believe you've been called, but let's evaluate your competency. And we go through a process of testing our pastors. I'm on the committee that does that testing, as is uh, Elder Conrad with me, and I can tell you, it is a thorough process. Uh, most of these men, there, there are five written exams that they are subject to. And to get you know, the last one we, we examined, one of his exams was 25 pages in length of his answers. That's one of the five. This is a thorough examination process to know that they are competent in the scriptures. We see that he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. He was educated, not just merely on his own. Yes, there is this idea that he has studied, he has learned, but he's also been given instruction. And again, it's interesting how often we see that. We need to look no further than the Apostle Paul, who himself studied at the feet of Gamaliel the leading Jewish rabbi of the first century and one of the top Jewish rabbis in history. He was the Harvard of his day. And that's where Paul studied. And now we see Apollos studying in Alexandria, a leading academic location. Uh, 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 uh. You know, it's interesting, we put all this together. 
his training, his education, his giftedness, the way he was prepared, that he was eloquent, that he was a man of words. We put all this together. You can see why there are many scholars who propose that perhaps Apollos is the author of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews does not identify its author. We don't know who it was, but it is a very eloquent book. It is written in a beautiful style. It has a a wonderful way of revealing to us the Christ. It clearly has a Jewish audience in mind. Perhaps a Jew who was gifted in words was the author of Hebrews. We don't know. Maybe. We see one other thing about his education. We have considered his giftedness. The way that you know, he was a Jew, he was eloquent, he was fervent, he, he, he was able to teach articulately, um, he was bold, he was powerful. We see his education coming out of Alexandria, being competent in the scripture, being instructed in the way of the Lord. But we see one final note about his training, about his education, about his preparation. And that's that note in verse 25. He knew only the baptism of John. There is a shortcoming in his training. He does not know the truth fully. His knowledge is limited. It, it, you may say, well, it's, well, he knows it only in the sense that he, he, he hasn't processed. But what does this mean for him? If he does not know about Christian baptism, if he does not know about baptism into the name of Jesus, then what else does that mean? He's never been baptized into the name of Jesus. And we now have all sorts of difficulties. And we consider now the pastor's present. Having considered his preparation, we look now at the pastor's present. Look at the difficulties this raises for us. One, we have no indication that he ever is baptized. Isn't that interesting? In the next section, we're going to see a group of disciples who are inadequate in their knowledge and in their training, but we're going to see Luke specifically talk about the correction. Here, we have no mention. You say, well, Luke didn't think that was an important thing to worry. Luke talks about baptism over and over and over and over again in the book of Acts. He goes to great lengths to point out the baptisms uh, that occur in the book of Acts. He makes a point of saying they believed and were baptized. It's also interesting when you think about this. We have no record of the 12 receiving Christian baptism. They were baptized, presumably along with Jesus by John. But they don't receive Christian baptism. It does suggest something, doesn't it? That while we need to get it right, while we see the the church working to get it right, there is a place for grace. There is a place for understanding. There is a place for instruction rather than condemnation. For leading rather than eschewing. For working with Apollos. For a man with this kind of heart who desires, who cares about education, would he not want to learn more and get it right? And does not the church uh, accept him and his teaching even as he is? And perhaps, perhaps, the, 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 the lack of mention of baptism is that it was acceptable 
that he had been baptized, um, not into the name of Jesus, as we see in the book of Acts, not into the Trinitarian formula, as we see in Matthew's gospel, but having been baptized, a baptism of repentance under John, the sign and the seal were there. They were in place. And perhaps what's more important than the formula or the timing is the God who is behind baptism. That may be part of what's at work here. We have another challenge in the pastor's present. He's made this mistake, and how is he? We have a challenge in the text in our present. Who is it that corrects him? Who is it that shows him he's wrong? Well, it's interesting, the order of the names for there is much in the ancient world, the order of names, just as they would argue over who was going to sit on Jesus' right and left hand in heaven, just as they would argue about who got to sit where at a banquet table, the order with which names are written is not haphazard or whatever name came to my head first. In the ancient world, it had purpose and intent. And having introduced them earlier as Aquila and his wife Priscilla, Luke now turns it around and says it's Priscilla and Aquila who instruct him. What do we do with this? Is this not a violation of Paul's prohibition on these things? Flip over in your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, looking at verse 12. 1 Timothy 2, 12. Keeping your finger in the Acts passage. We'll be right back there in a moment. Now, a real quick reminder. Paul writes Timothy to the pastor by that name. This letter is a letter to a pastor named Timothy. But do we recall where he is pastoring when he receives this letter? <gasps> He's pastoring in Ephesus. And where do the events that are taking place in Acts uh, 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 18 occur? In Ephesus. Interesting. 1 Timothy 2, verse 12, we read this. Paul writes, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. What are we to make of this? Has Priscilla just gone terribly wrong? Is she in violation of of Paul's prohibition? How do we think about this? Well, there are any number of possible uh, 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 responses. We could say yes. Yes, she is teaching Apollos, and yes, she violates Paul's prohibition. Luke has just merely recorded what happened. He's not approving it. He's not condoning it. He's merely recording it. But in the other places where, where, where Luke has recorded something that is clearly wrong, he has made a point of letting us see that it's wrong. He doesn't do so here. But it's a possible response. Yes, she taught Apollos, and yes, she was wrong. Another possible answer. Yes, she is teaching Apollos, and yes, this would eventually be wrong once Paul gives that prohibition. But the book of Timothy comes much later than this, and so she's not wrong now. This is not without precedent in the scriptures. There are places where we see this sort of thing playing out. I mentioned the baptism formula. I mentioned the baptism formula three or four times that it was in the name of Jesus. 
that ought to catch your attention, for it's not how we do baptisms. We do not baptize into the name of Jesus alone. We baptize in a Trinitarian formula, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. What's going on there? Well, when you study the book of Acts, when you look at the book of Acts, every baptism in Acts is into the name of Jesus, not into a Trinitarian formula. For Matthew's gospel was written well after these events took place. The church seems to have eventually corrected itself and said, oh, what we were supposed to do, according to Jesus, was baptize all nations in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. For a time, they, 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 they acted in good faith, but eventually got it corrected. We're also reminded of some simple realities about the way revelation develops and the way human, human society develops. Let me ask you this question. You remember the surviving sons of Adam by name, Cain and Seth? Who did they marry? With whom did they have children? It would later be a prohibition... It would later be forbidden, but there was a time in developing society where they did marry their sisters and have children by them. Perhaps, perhaps that's what's going on here. That what was permissible then under those circumstances is later forbidden. There is another possibility, and it's the one toward which I lean but I can't prove it, and I'm certainly not going to, uh, to uh, start a new denomination on this point. We're not going to have, uh, you know, the congregational meeting. We're not going to come back and address this and make it part of our constitution for our church. Okay? But I lean in this direction. We do have two different words in play. What we see in 1 Timothy is the word didaskos, uh, to teach, to instruct. What we see here is a, is, a, is a different word which has more the connotation of to reveal, to uncover. And if you thought about, if you think about teaching, uh, the, you know, as one who taught professionally for a number of years, there really are different ways that we teach. There are things that I teach, people to whom I teach, with, I, with which I give them direction to do it this way. I am authoritative in them. The chemistry lab comes to mind. You will not mix those two chemicals. And you will handle this chemical the way I am telling you to handle it. But of course we know that there are other times where teaching simply means to impart information to share with somebody, to let them know something. And it is interesting that the word Luke chooses to use here is not that first one, not that instruction with direction and, and, and uh, telling him what and how to do it, but rather it is that second idea of laying something bare, of uncovering it. Let us share with you. Perhaps she is more articulate than her husband. Perhaps she can explain it better than he can. And she goes to Apollos and says, let me tell you something. Are you aware that there is another baptism? Let me uncover this for you. Perhaps she does that without the heavy-handed direction that is forbidden in 1 Timothy 2. 
You know, the scriptures never do say that we can learn nothing from women. It never says that women don't know anything. It never prohibits us from gathering information for reasons that I don't understand and I'm not about to try to defend. I'm simply going to try to obey. It does prohibit women having authority over men in the church. But it does not prohibit women having knowledge and value and adding to our understanding, and helping us, and making us better. We must be able to to obey the one without extrapolating and, and, and turning it into a legalism that forbids things not forbidden. So we have these problems of his baptism, and of, the, of, of who trained and taught him, but lest we miss the point, let's move on. Let's not spend any more time on these problems, but rather let's look at what is here. We see here, in his present, a humility, a willingness to be corrected. There in verse 26, he submits to correction and instruction. One of the challenges of being a pastor, being a teacher, being anyone who is well-trained in their field, is the temptation to think, I know more than you do. And that might be true. But that doesn't mean you don't know something I need to know. Think about that. I can say with a fair amount of confidence that, well, okay, with the possible exception of my brother Matt over here, but with a fair amount of confidence for the rest of you, I can probably say that I, I fit in the category of there's a good chance that I have forgotten more chemistry than most of you will ever know. I did chemistry at a very high level for quite a while. That doesn't mean I can't learn something from you. That doesn't mean that you don't know something about a chemical used in your job that I've never encountered. That doesn't mean that you don't know something about a a, a chemical combination that you learned about, you know, Pinterest, about how to clean the house, you mix these two together and it produces, I don't know anything about it, I've never heard of it. And there is an arrogance that is, we are at risk of falling into. Simply because we are well trained. We don't need any more training. And we see here a man who submits to that instruction, who submits to that training, who despite his giftedness, despite his education, he listens and he hears. It is an area that all of us need to work on. We all need to be willing to be corrected, guided, refocused, retaught, told that we were wrong. It's not easy. And yet what we see here in this heart of this shepherd, in the heart of this pastor, is one who desires to get it right. What's more important than being perceived as right is actually being right. 
What's more important than being perceived as having it, you know, said it all perfectly is actually having his doctrine perfect. And he's willing to be corrected. We see it goes on and talks about how he speaks boldly in the synagogue and, and accurately concerning the things of Jesus. We talked about some of that with his giftedness, but it also plays out in his present as we consider the calling of a pastor, as we consider uh, what a pastor should be like, as you have someday to look for a new church or look for a new pastor, um, you, and, and as I have to consider what it means for me to be a pastor, these things matter. We must be able to declare Jesus with boldness. A sheepish pastor is almost an oxymoron. We must be able to, to, to teach accurately the things concerning Jesus. And we must be open to correction and instruction and redirection so that we will get it right. God prepares Apollos through his birth, through his upbringing, through his childhood home, through his training, his education, his giftedness, his fervency in the Holy Spirit, God then uses Apollos to speak boldly, to proclaim clearly the things of Jesus. But he also, in Apollos, formed a man who was humble enough to accept correction and instruction as we all need to do. Finally, we consider a pastor's future there in verses 27 and 28. We see there in verse 27, uh, uh, and he wished to cross to Achaia. He had a desire. He had a preference. God laid on his heart a desire to do something. Achaia is the region where Corinth, Corinth is the leading city uh, uh, in Achaia. He's headed back to, he's headed, he wants to go to Corinth. And sure enough, we saw from our New Testament reading in 1 Corinthians, he eventually gets to Corinth. Can you imagine for a moment being the fourth pastor in the city of Corinth, the church of Corinth? Being the fourth pastor. Because who were the first three pastors? Paul founds the church. Somewhere along the way, Peter is pastor of the church in Corinth for a time. We don't know the details. Apollos eventually is the pastor in Corinth. I would not want to be the fourth pastor in the city of Corinth. First pres of Corinth, you don't want to be the fourth pastor. That's quite a lineup. That's quite a group of able, gifted men that God gave to that church to help get it up and going. Apollos ends up there, as we saw in our New Testament reading. Here he has that desire. You know, God gives us desires. He gives us our will. We've been, we're going to wrestle this morning in Sunday school class with this, how, how does God's sovereignty and man's free will, how do they interplay it, how do they tie together? And one of the things we've got to be reminded is that God sovereignly established our will. He created our will. He gave it to us. And we have desires, and he uses those desires. We see here God, uh, Apollos, wishing to go to Corinth. Every once in a while, a pastor will have on his heart a desire to move on. My childhood pastor, eventually, for no reason of anything going wrong at our church, just the Lord led him, the Lord laid upon his heart the desire to move on. It happens. We must recognize, I'm not announcing anything. 
Once again, I'm just, you know, wrestling with the text here. Um, We see then, how did the church respond? The brothers encouraged him. They encouraged him in this. They said, if that's your desire, if that's what the Lord has laid on your heart, we want to get behind it. We want to help you. What a blessing when, when Becky and I, after praying and talking and wrestling, when we made the decision to come here and to leave Knox, Knox had been very good to me, very good to me. They had, they had paid me well. They treated me well. They, they provided for my seminary education. They, they allowed for not just money for my seminary education, but time carved out of my schedule. They were very good to me. And it would have been understandable in a fleshly, earthly perspective when I said that I was leaving for them to go, What? After all we've done for you? After all we've given you? After all the headaches we've put up with you as you learn things and made mistakes on us? We don't get the benefit of that? But they didn't do that. They said, praise God, you have a desire to go serve him in Eastern Maryland. And they were very good to us on the way out. And they've been very good to us since we've been here, sending their youth, sending you know, their prayers, working with us and helping us. And that's what we see here. The day comes that the Lord moves me on. I don't see it happening, but I don't want to close that door either. I don't want to leave the Lord to be the Lord. Can we recognize this and bless and encourage and get behind what the Lord, the desire the Lord puts on a man's heart? How do they encourage him? Well, they, they, they send a letter. Now, I'm going to guess that Aquila and Priscilla are the leaders of writing of this letter. They have a history with Corinth. They know the people in Corinth. The people in Corinth know them. They now know Apollo, so they're going to sit down and they're going to write a letter that says, hey, this guy is good. And oh, by the way, we got his whole baptism thing straightened out also, so, you know, he's really good to go. Accept him, welcome him, let him be your pastor. And what do we see the Lord doing in his future? He gets to Corinth and he is a great help, verse 27. And he powerfully refutes the Jews in public, verse 28. Did that leave Ephesus pastorless? Ephesus is an important city. This is an important church. Oh, eventually Timothy gets there, but what about the right now? If we let Apollos go, what's going to happen to us? Are we going to be without a pastor? You know, God sent the ultimate pastor, the good shepherd, the one who came and had every giftedness, every preparation, every ability necessary, got his doctrine right on the issues of baptism and everything else, and took him away. He didn't leave Jesus on this earth with us. He took him away. So did he leave us without shepherds? Did he leave us without guidance? Did he leave us pastorless? Well, we recognize even where we are right now that this is for us the means of grace. It is God's guidance. This is the body of Christ. 
And we continue in Him, being led by Him through His Word. We come to His table. We pray through His mediatorial work, where He fixes our prayers and passes them on to the Father. Because we don't even know what to pray for, according to Romans. He did not leave us pastorless. You know, it's interesting how Luke opens the book of Acts, is it not? That he tells us this is the continuing work. In my former volume, I wrote about what Jesus once did. Now I'm going to tell you about what he continues to do. The sermon series has been entitled, Acts, the Work Continues. Our God has not left us shepherdless. We have Jesus still ministering on our behalf, still ministering through us and to us, still speaking to us. One of the reasons we get frustrated with our earthly pastors, one of the reasons we get annoyed with our teachers, is because they do make these mistakes. They do get things wrong. They don't shepherd us like they ought to. They don't guide. Because we want the good shepherd, the ultimate shepherd, the pastor who is pastor above all pastors, who never got it wrong. And he's not left us. Each of us, needs to recognize that here we have him in his body, through his word, at his table. We continue to have the pastor, the shepherd, the one who guides us and leads us with more eloquence than Apollos could ever muster, with more endurance than Paul could ever imagine with more care and compassion than any who have come since. We continue to lead, to to follow his lead. Let's pray to him. Lord, as we consider this portrait of a pastor, of what we all need to be like as we play our own little role as shepherds, we are reminded that our longing is for you is to be with you, to see you face to face, to be guided by your hand, to be led by your uh, word. And yet, Lord, we are reminded that we have those things now. So let us cling to them. Let Let us not forsake them. Let us hold to you through your body, the church, through your word, the Bible, at your table, the communion cup and bread. All of this, we, we, we accept gratefully from you and look forward to the day when it will be fulfilled in our sight. We pray this in your beautiful name. Amen.